chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Jan and Janine, um, if you have kids in primary school, they can head out to Kids Church now, or if you've got kids under the age of primary school, they can head out to Kresh. Uh, let me just pray for them and this message. Jesus, thank you for the children of Summerhill Baptist Church, for the life that they bring us, for the insights into you and faith that they bring us. and. And we are just so deeply grateful and thankful for them. We're thankful for the leaders who take the time to pour into their lives in these moments. And so I just pray that you, Jesus, um, would pour out your love. May they know the depth of your love um, for them through this time. Um, pray for these words. The, the, the story of Ruth that we're going to look at, some may be familiar, some may not. But I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase so that we may see you at work through Ruth's story. And may, you may, we may see you at work through our story. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Who here enjoys hearing a good story? There's something profound about hearing a story. It might be a story of redemption. It might be a story of hope. It might be a story of heartache. Or it might be just another person's story that you get to sit across the table from. There's something about stories that unites us. Uh, Margaret Atwood, I'm not sure how many of you have heard her. She, I've heard of her. She wrote uh, the book, The Handsmaid's Tale. Uh, she said that you're never going to kill storytelling. It's always going to be a part of um, life because it's built in the human plan. We come with it. We come with this deep desire for stories. And so today we are continuing on with our series where we're looking at the women of Christmas. The women of Christmas are the five women that are in the genealogy of Jesus in the first chapter of Matthew. When typically women aren't included in these kind of lists, women are, this is a patriarchal society, Matthew chooses to include five. So far we have looked at two, we've looked at Tamar, we've looked at Rahab. With these women who are quite scandalous in a lot of ways, and yet God loves them and honors them and uses them despite their brokenness, despite everything in the, in the way of that, God is able to use them for his power and his purposes. And I missed an opportunity to share on this last week, uh, but there's a ministry that is uh, involved with, with someone named Moira Pullen, who's involved with our church. It's called Rahab. And that what Rahab do is they go into kind of Launceston to reach the people who are trapped in the sex trade and th so they're able to share the love of Jesus and see freedom in their lives. And so because they believe what these two stories have told us, that God loves these women, these women who are caught up in these difficult, challenging, oppressive Situation. So if there's something in you that kind of stirs and would like to either support or maybe even 
chat to Rick and Moira about this ministry. Um, they're not here this week, but we can grab your details if you would like to, and um, you'll be able to hear a bit more of what they do and how you may be able to be involved. But today we come to one of the stories, that is, if you've been in church land for a while, probably one of the more well-known stories of this list of five, I mean, outside of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and that is the book of Ruth, the person of Ruth. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this incredible story. Who here has read the story of Ruth or knows a bit about the story of Ruth? It's, it's a phenomenal story. And so we're going to see how God weaves in the midst of all of this and then how she comes to be included in this genealogy. This story was set in the time of the judges. And so if you have read the book of Judges, it's about the fifth or sixth book, uh, sorry, seventh book in the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament. It's not for the faint-hearted. It's brutal. There are stories that I struggle to even read today in that book. Uh, it's a time of violence. It's a time where the pe- you see repeatedly through Judges that the people had no king and they did what was right in their own eyes, which is kind of Bible code but not a good thing. The amount of times that people do what is right in their eyes through the scriptures, it never really ends up well for them and it always hurts someone else. And so this is the time that the story of Ruth happens in. We're introduced to this family who are living in Bethlehem at the time. You have Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons, Marlon and Kilion. And there's a famine in Bethlehem. And so they make the decision as a family to up and leave to a place called Moab. And now what you need to understand is that they are currently in the land that God has promised them to make this journey is a conscious leaving of the place that God had promised them, which does happen sometimes in scripture, never works out well. You can go and read the story of Abraham in chapter 12, how he's in the promised land, but because there's a famine, he flees to Egypt. That story doesn't work out so crash hot for him. But this is a moment where this family who are in the land that God had given them makes a decision to leave, which if there's a famine raging in the land, you you go to where there's food. I think this is driven out of survival. But this time in Moab is one that's marked by tragedy and one that's marked by trauma. Firstly, her husband, Elimelech, so Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies in Moab. She has two sons. Um, this is a time and age where uh, women don't have, there's not social support, there's not Centrelink. Um, there's a woman's support is in the husband or the father or in the sons that they have. And so losing her husband is a devastating blow for obvious reasons. But she still has some support. She still has two sons. These two sons marry and they marry to Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. They live for 10 years in the land. But then after 10 years, her sons die as well. And so now you have Naomi, Orpah and Ruth are childless widows. They are the lowest rungs on the social ladder in the ancient world. They have little support around them. 
And this is a dangerous situation to be in. And Naomi is from Bethlehem. She has no family in Moab. And so she makes the decision that she is going to go back. She's heard that the Lord is providing food in Bethlehem and she wants to make the trek back. And her two daughters-in-law want to come with her. But she's walking along the road and she tries to tell them, don't come. Don't come with me. If you've got a Bible with you, Ruth chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, Ruth lays out her, sorry, Naomi lays out her reasoning behind why these two women shouldn't come. Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who can grow up to be your husbands? This is in a day and an age we looked at in Tamar, where if a a woman is married to someone's son and they die, another son can marry or another relative can marry to help redeem and save the family line. So this is what she's talking about here. No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? Of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord has raised his fist against me. You get a sense, there's a window into Naomi's soul right there and how she is traveling. And so Orpah hugs and weeps. She decides to go back to Moab. But Ruth flatly denies to go back. She is going to stay with Naomi. In fact, one of the more famous verses from the book of Ruth comes in this bit where Ruth kind of comes right back at her mother-in-law and says this in verses 16 to 18. Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. (laughs) I like this line. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined, yeah, it comes out a little bit in there. To go with her, she said nothing more. Ruth is willing to, in, to embrace a life of poverty, of destitution, kind of being at the bottom rung of that ladder to be loyal to Naomi. She is willing to turn her back on her father's country, on her father's gods, and take on the gods of Naomi's or the God of Naomi's people. Much like Abraham, when he leaves his father's household and his father's country, Ruth is making a very similar decision here. And as they return to Bethlehem, people are stirred by Naomi's return. Some say that is they're excited. There are some translations where it says that there's kind of an animosity there, but it's whipped up a frenzy of some kind. But Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore. That's not who I am anymore. My name is Mara, which means bitter. 
She's like, the Lord has made me bitter. The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord has pierced me. The Lord has wounded me. I'm not the same person I was before I left. He has emptied me out where there was fullness. I think you look through the story, these next four chapters of Naomi's life, of this this window into Naomi's life, and you see that Naomi is a woman of faith in God. Just this moment she is expressing the deep devastation that she is feeling of the way her life has panned out for her. I don't know if you've ever experienced a moment like that where life has been difficult, where it's felt like God has been against you. And in this moment, Naomi refuses to wear a mask. She's real with what she's going on for her. And so I think the questions for for all of us to ponder is like, how, how are you traveling? Really? Do you put on a mask? And who, and I think there are moments where we do put on masks, but who can you be maskless with? Who can you share openly and authentically about what's really going on without a sense of just trying to cover it up and make things seem better? So we're told at the end of chapter one that the barley season is beginning. And so Ruth and Naomi make a plan that Naomi will go into the fields, or sorry, that Ruth will go into the fields and glean some of the leftover ears of grain. This is kind of like a way of taking care of the least of these. It comes into the Jewish law that basically when people are harvesting wheat and grain, there are some bits that fall to the ground and are left over. The people who own the field are told not to pick them up to leave them so that others less fortunate can come and gather them and have something to eat. So this is what Ruth has gone to do, and she just so happens to go into the field of a man named Boaz. And, it, and Boaz kind of comes into it. We're told, in, he's introduced earlier, that he is a relative of Elimelech's, which is important, so hold on to that. But while Ruth is in the field, Boaz just so happens to notice her. I was like, who's that woman? And the foreman of the field tells him everything, who she is, where she's come from, her connection to this community, and he is impressed by her loyalty to Naomi. He pours out generously onto, uh, generously onto Ruth in this time. He gives her water, he protects her, he allows her to glean from the field. He actually gives her wheat that hasn't just come from the ground. It's like the cream of the crop. He allows Ruth to eat with them and to dip bread into water. All of these things, extravagant generosity of what is going on. It's, it's like there's love in the air. And Ruth returns home. We're told she's carrying like two weeks worth of grain and food. And she comes in and Naomi looks at it and went, whose field have you been in? Like, that's a hole. You want to stay in that field as long as you can. And Ruth says, oh, it's just it's this guy, Boaz. Naomi lights up. She's beginning to see these different things, how God is at work, because Boaz is their family redeemer. 
He is one, so what that means, he is one who is related to Elimelech, who could step in and marry Ruth and redeem the family line, take back the land that was lost, to restore them. He is super significant. This is kind of one of the things that happens. It happened in the story of Tamar. It was one of the things that Judah did not provide for Tamar. And so, again, Ruth and Naomi conjure a plan of how to approach Boaz and how to ask whether he would step into this role of a family redeemer. And so here's the plan. Ruth was to change out of her mourning clothes uh, because her husband had passed away and she's to have a bath, wash up and wear something really nice, go down to where Boaz is, pay attention to where he lies down, and then to go and fall asleep at his feet, and then see what happens. That's the plan. I don't know if I'm Ruth, I'm vetoing it. It doesn't seem like a wise plan, but Ruth does it. And Boaz is understandably shocked when he wakes up and there's someone by his feet. Wouldn't you? Like if you woke up and there's just someone lying at your feet, would that not be a little weird? And Boaz wakes up, and this is the moment in verse 6. We have verse 9, sorry. This, this moment happens, and Boaz went over and said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, stay with us. Oh, sorry, that's the wrong chapter. Verse 9 of chapter 3. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. Sorry, I've gone to verse 10. Sorry, let me just step right back, rewind it a little bit. I've gone off script. Verse 9, who are you, Boaz asked, when he notices this woman lying at his feet. I am your servant Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. That seems like who here understands what that's, what's going on there? Like, that's a weird saying, isn't it? It seems a little bit seedy. Cover the corner of your cloak over me. What's happening? This is so far foreign from our cultural understanding. This only happens. This verse only comes up, this phrase, in one other passage, and it's this one, in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. And it comes up in the context of God entering into a relationship, entering into a covenant with his people. That it says, Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. This is God saying, I am taking you as my people in and initiating a new covenant with you. This phrase, to spread over the garment, is one of welcoming in and joining together in a covenant. What Ruth is asking is, will you be, will you be my husband? Will you be my kinsman redeemer? Will you join with me in this deep relationship. I want to be your wife. This is what's happening in this moment. And Boaz is clearly impressed with the character and loyalty of Ruth. He agrees that he will step into this role 
But there is a problem. There is someone who is more related to Elimelech than Boaz. And so he decides, we have to let this guy choose. If he decides to do it, that's fine. If he doesn't, I'll step in. And so the next day at the city gates, he comes over to this guy. This, we never actually learn his name. He's just known as a kinsman redeemer, never given a name. And Boaz lays out the situation. Will you step in and take on the land and take on uh, all of the things that comes with this family line? This is in chapter four. And the kinsman redeemer says, yeah, absolutely. He's getting more land. He's getting more stuff. He's getting more renown. Of course, I'll take that on. And so Boaz says, okay, also you need to marry Ruth the Moabite. And he's like, no deal. No, 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 thank you. Because what that means is he has to actually give up some of what he has for it to become into their family as he redeems the line. And so he's okay with it when he's getting more stuff. He's not so okay with it when he's losing out. And so he kind of formally goes through the process of saying, no, I do not want to be a part of that, which I think, let's be honest, we're, we're a bit Team Boaz here. We don't know this guy's name. We don't know who he is. We're not invested. And so the fact that he's now out of the picture and Boaz can step in is this kind of brings the story full circle. This is the happy ending. And, and it gets to the point where you have tragedy, you have death in the chapter one. It comes to this point in the story. There's restoration. There's life. And a new child is born. A new child is born to Ruth and Boaz named Obed. And Naomi is praising God. He has taken, she has gone from bitterness to joyfulness in God. It's this beautiful story that's summed up well. And then we get to the bit that Jan read for us earlier, this random little genealogy at the end. And you realize the curtain has been pulled back. And these everyday, ordinary people, they don't seem to be people of prominence, Naomi and Ruth. And, I mean, Boaz is seen as a man of stature, but these just seem like ordinary, everyday people. You pull back the curtains and they are part of the family line of King David. That this boy who has just been born, Obed, he is the grandfather of the greatest king Israel would have. And the one whom God promises, someone from your line will forever sit on the throne of Israel. Which ties the story of Ruth into the genealogy of Jesus. And this is just purely conjecture. You can disagree with me on this. That's fine. But I'm confident that as Ruth and Boaz were, were raising Obed, they had no idea that he would be the grandfather of one of the greatest kings in Israel. They're just going through, I think, their everyday life. And yet God weaves them together, uses their choices 
and is actually able to bring something beautiful out of it. Through the faithfulness and courage of Ruth, through the vulnerability and openness of Naomi, through the generosity and integrity of Boaz, through these characters, God then weaves and moves. It's, it's kind of hard to describe where God is at work and when they're choosing and everything. It's this weird mix. But how many times has that been true of our lives as well? That there are times we are just going through the everyday rhythms of life, making the choices that we feel are the best choices for us to make. And sometimes even the choices that aren't the best choices for us to make. That we look back on it and we see God's fingerprints at work. God leading us in ways that we were never aware of at the time. And so the question that I want to leave us with is what is the next best choice that you need to make? What is that thing that's kind of on your mind that I need to have that conversation? I need to forgive that person. I need to act in integrity here. I need to take that step of faith. What is that next thing for you to do? Because I think with our lives, we we do what we know is right to do and then trust God with the rest. What is that choice for you? Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for the story of Ruth. I thank you for and I don't fully understand it, but the, the choices that Ruth and Naomi and Boaz make seem linked in with how you're moving behind the scenes in, in ways that almost seem coincidental. And somehow you are working in ways that are bringing about the genealogy of Jesus. There are things I'm guessing in each of our lives that we maybe don't understand why it's going on or not seeing where you're at work. Father, what does it mean to be faithful to you in this next step, in this next season? What does it mean to trust you and know that you are at work behind the scenes? In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.